The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. Have you ever felt like if you've been set free from your sins in the past, but now your new sins have stacked up so much you don't even know what to do? This text is for you. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? Even as we approach texts like this, we wonder if we'll be able to take in news that's good. There are people in this room who are so burdened by sin that they promised they wouldn't run back to, and yet they they find themselves reveling in it. They're so addicted and they hate it, but even though they promise they won't, they won't give in. They've given in even as early as last night or this morning. It's just so hard the temptation to be confronted with our weakness. We ask by your Holy Spirit that you would pour yourself out on us. That you would bring hope to those who are weary. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Erin is gone this weekend. She went to go and surprise and celebrate with her her brother uh, his 40th birthday. And so that means that I have been at home alone with the children for the last three days. Five children and me. So if any of you want to hang out today or this afternoon or this evening or need any counseling, I'm certainly happy to gather with you. As long as you can just keep them in your mind. One of the things that our twins have learned to do is to push a stool over to the sinks and to play in the sinks. They call each other Nonner and Coco. That's Connor and Cohen. But they're Nonner and Coco around our house. And sometimes they're allowed to do it. We have five kids, and if things are going crazy, and somebody wants to push a stool over to the sink and play in the water a little bit and dip a toothbrush in and brush his teeth and dip a toothbrush in, it's not the end of the world. But then there are some times when we don't want them to be all wet when we're trying to leave the house and we don't need to change another kid's outfit, and are sometimes we've decided they, they cannot do it, it's too big of an inconvenience. And so we're trying to teach them that the difference, which is hard for a two-year-old. And so recently, Aaron was talking with Coco, and he was she was explaining to him that right now is not a time to play in the sink. You can't do it right now because you might get all wet, and we're not going to change clothes. And he said, Coco, don't touch the water. Don't touch the water, Coco. And so Aaron's facing her mirror, and Coco's behind him at a stool at my sink, facing himself in the mirror. And Aaron has explained it very clearly to him, and then she hears his little voice staring at the sink, staring at the faucets, go, Coco, don't touch water. Coco, don't touch water. And she hears our two-year-old reasoning with himself through temptation. Ten seconds go by, he turns on the water wide open. 
glasses, gets put in his crib, gets discharged. It's cute to think of a two-year-old having to fight temptation, but you and I both know what that's like. Whether it's something that you're not supposed to put in your body, or whether it's something that's mistreating your body, or whether it's something of gossip, of pride, slander, envy, some form of adultery, some form of making an idol and loving it more than you do Jesus. We've all stood right there and said, just don't do it again. I know it's bad. I know it's not good for me. Just don't do it again. And ten seconds later, we stop. It's in those moments that if you don't know the reality of what's in this text, you will run away from God. Because you will think, I had grace, and I stepped past it, and I'm overwhelmed, and I'm ashamed of myself. And now there's no sacrifice left for me, so the easiest thing to do is to stay away from God and try not to think about it. Honestly, I think that's why so much of the younger generation has struggled and stayed away from churches, because we felt like whatever it was that kept us as viable applicants for the church we went off and broke all of those. And it's easier now just not to think about it. The author to the letter of Hebrews points us to something new. Amid trouble, there are three things he wants you to do. Hold fast to our confession, encourage others, and pray constantly. And then we're going to ask, why can you do that? Why can you hold fast to your confession? Encourage one another and pray confidently. But first, in trouble, that's what you're supposed to do. Hold fast to your confession. Look at me. I don't know if you have it. Three, uh, you don't have this one. Three, verses 12. He says, well, hold fast to the confession. In Hebrews 4.14, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Over and over again in Hebrews, he'll talk about belief. You must believe, hold fast to our confession. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he would need to address the people of God who have claimed Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, and he has to keep telling the same group of people who are now called believers to hold fast? Why would he need to do that? It's because God knows that it's hard for you to believe. It's hard for you to believe because of the suffering that you will experience, because of the sin in your own heart, it is hard for you to believe. We have this perspective of God that He knows it all, and so He is condescendingly postured towards us, saying, Why don't you just get it already? I told you. Why do I have to tell you again? Why don't you get it? And for those in the room who battle with doubt, I mean real doubt. The kind that says, I'm not sure He can love me. I'm not sure He can forgive me. I'm not sure He's the only one. I want you to be encouraged. Go through the Bible as God looking at His people and saying, I know it's hard for you to believe, but come and believe anyway. John said this, referencing the story where Judas, excuse me, Thomas, was having a hard time believing 
He said, I won't believe unless I put my hands in his side and I touch the holes in his hands and his feet. And Jesus told him, because of you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What he's saying is he has mercy and grace for even Thomas, who's staring at the wounds, doesn't yet all the way believe, and yet he knows that there's going to be all of these people that follow who never get to see. As you struggle with doubt, be encouraged that God knew that it would be hard for you to believe. There are going to be things that happen to you in this world where you think, I can't in this second hold together a loving God and my pain. I can't put those things together. Why? Later in John, it will say, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book. But these are written, why? Why did John write the entire Gospel of John, 22 chapters? These are written that you may believe. Friends, if you have thought that Christians are different because we believe all the time, you're wrong. You've got plenty. And the Bible is full of encouragement for us to believe, to press forward. It says in Jude 22, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, be merciful to those who doubt. Not throw out the ones in the sanctuary who doubt. Find them and expose them and whip them on stage. But it says be merciful to those who doubt. It actually shows spiritual maturity to see how broken this world is and to wrestle with the reality that God is yet in control. And he's saying, hold fast to the confession that Jesus is God. Believe it even when it's hard. Now remember, these people are suffering and are being persecuted. What encouragement for them to hear from God that I know it's hard for you to believe, but hold fast. Hold fast. Whatever it is that you're facing right now, I want you to hold fast to that confession. That Jesus is who he says he is. And that there's more good yet to come. And sometimes it's too hard for us to hold that ourselves. Things are too painful. Things are too twisted. And so he says this, encouragement for others. Encourage one another. This is from Hebrews 3.13. He wants you to encourage others. He knows how hard it is for you to believe. And he knows how hard it is for those around you to believe. And so he says, I want you to hold fast, and I want you to encourage others. This is why it's so important that we come to church. You're going to doubt the reality of God's work in your life. I'm going to doubt the reality of God's work in my life. And we're supposed to be with others so that we can be encouragement. We're supposed to wear ourselves out with encouragement. What if that's what this church was known for, is that we would encourage one another during difficult times? Jesus knew we would need encouragement. In Acts 14.22, it says, Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith, you must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Isaiah 35.3, With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. What it's saying is that we're supposed to walk around and lift each other up and dust each other off and say, I don't know why you're going through this, 
but I will walk with it. I will walk through it with you. Now, a couple of pointers for us. If you don't know, in four or five people, if you don't know that somebody's struggling or getting persecuted or overwhelmed with their sin, the first thing you need to do is get nearer to other people. You don't have to know three people. But if you can be in this place and not know anyone that's struggling with sin or persecution or being overwhelmed, you need to get nearer to them. Because you can't encourage people from a distance. You've got to get near to each other and you're going to encourage one another. And we're going to remind each other that what our struggling or suffering is, it isn't the only thing. But also what we're going to say is, is that if you're so low, if you're so burdened that you can't believe the gospel, you can't believe that God loves you in Christ, you can't believe that right this second, we'll believe it for you. We will believe it on your behalf. We'll cling to that and we'll pray when you don't have the words to pray. We'll do it for you. The community is so rich where sometimes you can close your eyes and not sing and listen to the words so that you need to hear them more than you need to proclaim them. You need to have the people around you trusting in God's grace when you can't trust it for yourself. Despite the fact that things are hard in the midst of troubles, we're supposed to cling, hold fast to our faith. We're supposed to be an encouragement for others. This church had a rough end of the year. very short period of time, Ted Strawbridge, our assistant pastor, he passed away tragically in his light bulb. Seven days later, I'm coming out of the funeral, and I got a text from Elizabeth that her brother had just passed away in a tragic accident regarding a recent Normally it's Ben and me and Elizabeth to start the day and we're sitting there and we're catching up and we're joking around and kind of teasing each other and getting ready for the week, looking at our schedules together. But instead I would come in and we're all just empty. This feeling of where do we go from here? How do we keep moving amidst all this loss? small group leaders gathered up food and chocolate and gift cards and candles and wine and they brought it all to us in the middle of a staff meeting and had it all lined up for us. It's as if their way to say, we're with you. We know that you're battling. We know that you're struggling, but we're here with you. We'll believe on your behalf right now when it's hard for you to believe. Can you imagine what encouragement that was for our staff? That somebody saw that it was hard and got near us. That's what it's asking us to do for each other. Now, for some of us need to get nearer to others, but others of us need to let people in. Do people know what you're battling with? Do people know what you're struggling with? Do they know what you're overwhelmed with? Do they know your sin enough? See, we can't encourage you. We can't believe on your behalf if we don't know what's wrong. 
And again, it doesn't have to be 300 people. It can be four or five. But are you being vulnerable enough to let us be the people of God for you? We're supposed to pray in true faith, encourage one another, and have confidence in our prayers. Confidence in our prayers. Can you imagine this? This is 416. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this is a battered group of people who are suffering and overwhelmed. And they're supposed to come forward with confidence. What this reminded me of is my brother-in-law, Jeremy McCaslin. When he would first come around and he was starting to date my sister Sarah, he would come around and we'd all go out for big, nice dinners. My dad would pick a nice restaurant and he would want to bless everybody and we'd all go out. And I would order a cocktail and a salad and an appetizer and then a glass of wine and a steak and then dessert. And he'd be like, um, can I have um, the chicken? Uh, and I'd go, that's all, I'll drink water. You see, it was hard for him to portray confidence because he didn't want to offend anybody. He didn't want to he didn't want to over-ask. He didn't want to spend too much when it was on someone else's diet. And so he would basically come with this reticence to these big family dinners. And every time I'd nudge him, I'd go, dude, you can get what you want. It's okay. He loves to bless people. Get what you want. And it was hard for him to do. Choosing a burger instead of a steak. As they got married and have been together longer, had two kids together, his orders have gotten more and more expensive. Because he knows that he's loved. He knows that he's delighted in. He knows that he's accepted. And because of those things, because of his standing, he's allowed to come in and ask for whatever he wants. And ultimately, that's what it's talking to us about here. Is that, do you have the confidence to go before the throne of God and ask for whatever you want? One of the commentators quotes Calvin saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why His majesty should ward us off from approaching. Now, do you see this cool picture? Who's it been talking about? The high priest? The high priest, remember, they'd wrap a robe around him and they'd put a bell on him in case he dies in the presence of God, they could yank him out. So you're that guy. And you walk in into the Holy of Holies before the living God and you're supposed to do work in there without passing out out of terror. So it's contrasting this reticent, afraid, scared posture that the high priest would have had, and it's instead saying, you're not like that anymore. You burst into the room. You tell God what you want, and you do so out of the assurance of He loves you, has given His Son for you, and He wants you in that room. Can you imagine such a sweet contrast? You're supposed to come in boldly. What it's saying is that you're so confident in Jesus' finished work, you're so confident in the generosity of God that you would expect that He wants you there. Now, I know that's hard for us because what do we do? We sin, we mess up, and then we sort of put our head down and stare at our shoes. Thank God, it's not too much trouble. And I won't ask this again for a while. And I know I said this recently, but could you please? No! That feels like humility. That's not what it is. What that is is saying the finished work of Christ didn't do enough, and so you've got to grovel as well. 
You see, when you come in boldly, you're actually paying compliment to the finished work of Christ that says, I have everything I need to step through this room and ask for what I want because you love me like you love your son. You see, it's a posture change. And Christianity desperately needs it because we all walk around with our heads focused at our shoes, so ashamed of ourselves. And all that's saying is Jesus' work wasn't really enough. Jesus' work plus my somber, self-flagellating, beat myself up, woe is me, that together ought to be enough. And he's saying, no. When I did the work, it was finished. You walk in this room like a son or a daughter of the living God who is so valuable, Jesus paid with his own life and blood. Don't you come in here and hang your head. That's what he's telling us. We're called a bold frankness. So when we're amid trouble, when we're amid trouble, we're supposed to hold on to faith even though he knows it's hard, hard for us to hold on to. We're supposed to encourage one another, be close enough to people to be encouraged, and we're supposed to pray with bold frankness. But why? Why can we do all those things? There's two reasons. Because Jesus empathizes with your weakness. Because Jesus has dealt with your sin. Jesus empathizes with your weakness. And Jesus has dealt with your sin. Look with me in 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Bible says that he empathizes with your weakness. Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be he knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to have evil hunting him. He knows that darkness. And you might think, well, that doesn't count because he never gave in. He never messed up, so he doesn't really know how bad it is. C.S. Lewis says this in response. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation is. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And here, he says this. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to full what temptation means. What it means is that it's not less understanding of what it's like to be a sinner what it's like to be tempted. It's that he gets it. He did all of the work except he never got the relief or the release of giving in. Still holding it at bay, still pushing off, still obeying God 
God, even when it was hard to do. He says, who knows what it's like when you're weak and when you're discouraged. He felt that. He came and was like you. When evil was calling for you, he knows. He felt that too. out, please check back in because this is the best news of the whole text. He deals gently with your sin. Look at me in five. Chapter five, verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, only when called, just as Aaron does. So before he talks about Jesus, he's going to set up the contrast between the high priest and how the high priest got his job. Is one of the people, not an angel, he's one of the people who knows what it's like to be a person. He has sympathy with sinners because he himself sins. He has to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. And he knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be wrong. And he's saying, how much better, if you're dealing with this human high priest, how much better is Jesus to do so? Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. The reason that you can cling to faith, the reason that you can encourage others, the reason that you can affirm and uh, believe for each other on your behalf, the reason that you can do those sorts of things is because Jesus empathizes with your weakness and Jesus deals gently with your sin. The reason that I emphasize that to you is because that's not what we believe. We believe that Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross, and every time since, He's had this posture of frustration and disappointment and weariness with us. Admit it. This sense of, oh, again, are you kidding me? You will never follow closely a God who you think feels that way about you. You won't. You'll be aloof. You'll be standoffish. You'll try and perform for Him. But what if Jesus deals gently with the sin of his people? I mean, he certainly calls us to. When we call and go and pursue someone who's done something that's going to wreck their life, you think I come in swinging a hammer? It says, you who are spiritual, restore that person gently. Why do you think he says that? If he who is without sin restores gently, how much more so should I who is full of When someone is telling me in particular about a sin, I either, 100% of the time, I either say out loud or say in my head, given the pastoral pastoral context, I say out loud, I could do that. I could do that. It's because 
knowing Christ, you know your own heart, knows that you are given any given day, any given context, you could throw in and do something ignorant and wayward. And that's why these priests were good, as they knew that their people were messed up. They knew that their people would make mistakes. And before they can even deal with their people's mistakes, they have to go and sacrifice for themselves. How could they do that if they were expecting anger? How could they go and deal with other people's sin, deal with their own sin, if they were expecting to meet some ogre in the sky? I want you to hear this. This is Thomas Goodwin, and he says of the heart of Christ towards sinners on earth. His whole argument, basically, is that God's heart is different than we think it is. If it was compassionate and kind and loving and sacrificial when he was on earth, how much more so now that he is in heaven, is his argument. And he says this, Thomas Goodwin, as for the guilt